Okay, so Little Big Man here was a film I was pretty excited to uh, investigate for our little podcast here because I'd never seen it. It has pretty pretty good reviews. It's a 96 slash 87 on Rotten Tomatoes, and it did have one Oscar nomination for the chief guy, uh, the old chief uh, hmm. playing. Oh shoot, what's his what's his name? And it's uh, old Lodge. Old Lodge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's funny too is I feel like I've done this with other movies on our list where it might be an otherwise underwhelming movie, and I'm like, man, that performance sticks. It's like, oh, it drums along the Mohawk. I remember like thinking, like, man, his little uh, the old lady that played his landlord she was really cool and like she's the one moxie nomination for the movie yeah or like year of living dangerously you're living dangerously like yeah you, you, and you, like we notice during the movie wow and then we look yep that sure enough those are the oscar nominations so same thing here i was watching yeah. this like, like man this guy's he kind of stands out in this film and then sure enough he's the one oscar nomination it's it's, it's kind of funny how i guess we tend to agree with those kinds of things but yeah the biggest thing that hit me about this movie is that i guess i wasn't expecting a comedy and it's not fully a comedy, but it's kind of pretty much a comedy. Yeah, it does. It definitely it doesn't take itself. It's a reverence, seriously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was almost kind of just bizarre in the sense that because it didn't go full like farce or slapstick, right? And there's definitely, I mean, I mean, shoot, I mean, start the, the opening scene or after uh, we flash back to his childhood, like it starts with like his family getting murdered and stuff and right. so like there's there's some there's a lot of dark stuff in it yeah and so you're almost even confused and maybe because we, you know it's from the 70s it, it, just, it just seems odd that it's a comedy but as far as placing this timeline it, we really weren't sure like I, we kind of included it because of the presence of the battle of little bighorn and this is probably a little early in our timeline to be discussing that because we're probably a decade uh before that on our timeline here we kind of included it more just I mean, on the tail end of the Civil War here, obviously. But it does cover a lot of decades. So the whole premise of this, the story, because it's based off a book, is this guy in the, quote, present day, which is now, of course, another 50 years ago now. He's 120 years old or whatever, and he's the oldest man on Earth. And he's telling his life story to whoever's interviewing him here. But he, since he is so old, his life story goes back to the late 1850s and kind of throughout the Reconstruction era, but all kind of out west where he does get involved with several historical figures. So it did kind of seem like a good choice to discuss. But as far as the film itself, again, this is a made-up character, and everything he does is, you know, did not happen. Um, he just kind of encounters, it's almost like a Forrest Gump kind of thing in some ways, where he's kind of encountering um, a lot of action. Actually, that's probably, it is very Forrest Gumpy in a way, isn't it? I never thought about that. I was actually going to say that. It's, it, he's kind of the Forrest Gump of the West. Where he's like meeting, you know, these like legendary old West figures and he's involved in actually there's some actual historical events that are portrayed in the movie. But yeah, it is it is kind of Forrest Gumpy. And the fact that he's like, you know, hundred and twenty years old by the end. Right, like that's, right. That's kind of an interesting an interesting concept for a movie is like, oh yeah, it's a guy in the seventies, the nineteen seventies right. talking about his exploits in the old West over a hundred years ago. Right, right. Yeah, I can't believe the Forrest Gump thing didn't occur to me until just now. Uh, it's probably because it's so tonally different. Like, there, it's a very different vibe to uh, this film. But yeah, it it is kind of neat, though, that he basically goes through these different phases in his life uh, where he's kind of all these different things, but they're all Wild West tropes. 
And so right. he goes from yeah. being, you know, he gets the, I, I, honestly, I'm probably going to miss him here, but he gets like the religious phase. He has the snake oil salesman phase. He has the sharpshooter, you know, gunfighter phase. He has the yep. drunk on the street phase. What am I missing? Oh, he has the lone mountain man phase briefly. He has the living with the Indians phase. Yeah, and I'm probably even missing some, but it, it, that was kind of amusing how they just kind of almost had like a checklist and they're making sure all these things worked into uh, his life. He had the uh, storekeeper phase where he marries the Swedish immigrant or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's it's so much is happening, but so quickly that it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And honestly, we really don't need to talk about the movie itself beyond that and can get more into the historical figures and events that we do see in this film i guess i guess before we do that just in general did, I, what's your review here of little big man like did you like it i if if i had to describe not just the movie but kind of everything about this episode that we're doing it'd be pleasantly surprised so like i knew it was going to be good because it has good you know rotten tomatoes it was like i knew there was going to be stuff in there that i would enjoy but as i was watching the movie i was like man this is i really like this this is a fun a fun movie and there's definitely i mean there's there's some parts of the movie that are not fun there's some <laughs> really tragic stuff that happens too but it's like i don't know i i don't think i've ever seen i don't think i've ever seen a movie like this just the the way that it has all of those pretty drastic tonal shifts but it all works nothing's nothing's out of place you know what i mean it's not like it's a comedy where there's this like, you know, there's a couple dark things that's like, wow, those that's really weird that they put those in there. Or or the opposite, where it's like a really, you know, gritty, tragic movie that then has these like comedic moments that are, seem out of place. Like everything everything fits, everything works, um, as far as the tone, which I thought was kind of impressive just given the spectrum of what happens in the movie. Huh. And what that was interesting is I it did not work as well for me. I, I I actually found myself maybe a hair on the disappointed side as opposed to the pleasantly surprised side. I think because of the the very impressive ninety six slash eighty seven percent and because it wasn't necessarily what I expected and I was almost confused the whole way. Like, wait, what am I supposed to be watching here? So I just think maybe I would appreciate it more the more I watched it. I think it's definitely one of those movies that could grow on you. But kind of mm. first time through, I was almost like, oh, well, this isn't quite what I wanted. Yeah, I just, I think, uh, so I definitely have a deep love of, like, Westerns true, in general. True. And it's hard now that I've seen so many Westerns. To find one that's different. They're, right, so they're all, they're, there are different. a lot of them, especially the older ones, are pretty formulaic. A lot of them right. are, are pretty much the same movie, to be honest. And so to see a Western where it's like, oh, wow, okay, this is something that I've never seen before. True. Like that kind of scratched an itch for me where it's like, oh, okay, this is a good Western and it's done in a way that I've never seen before. I think that might be why I liked it so much. Okay. And 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 thinking back, I feel like I liked several scenes. Like, oh, I like that bit. I like it. It's almost like I didn't like how it was all meshed together. But I liked individual segments by themselves, and maybe it was almost just like the overall mm. through point seemed too chaotic for me to kind of enjoy. I, yeah, it, I didn't dislike it, but I was just kind of meh on it overall. But again, I, I think it would probably be better on, on subsequent watches now that I know what it is going in. Like, again, I wasn't, it probably wasn't, I was probably a third of the way through before I'm like, is this a comedy? Like, I just felt like dumb watching the movie, like, trying to figure out, like, what are you trying to show me here, movie? 
Do you think that has anything to do with when it came out? Like, do you think that... I think so. I think so. It's just, like, maybe it's a 70s thing. Like, it's a generational thing where it's, like, it's just a different way, a different attitude towards filmmaking. Right. You're in the you're in the pre-Spielberg, pre-George Lucas era, and movies were just made differently. And obviously, I've watched plenty, but most of those, you know, let's say pre-1975 films do have that more formulaic kind of, you know making to them that is you know you kind of know what you're getting into so this isn't a this is kind of a weird weird world where it is a atypical pre-1975 movie and yeah it's just kind of jarring to yeah my yeah. brain I, my brain couldn't figure out where to categorize it maybe sure it's um it's based off of a book and yes i don't know anything about the book do you know is the book that way too is the book have is it kind of that like kind of strange tonal shift happened in the book at all Tonally, I couldn't say. Just kind of briefly, you know, skimming the Wikipedia page on it, it seems like it seemed to my mind a pretty faithful depiction of the book. But it, as far as tonally, I don't know. Because going back to Forrest Gump, there is a difference there. Like the Forrest Gump book, for example, is a straight comedy. Oh, yeah, and it's completely different. Right. Like the the story. Yeah, it's it's not. It's like not even close, really. <laughs> right. No. Yeah. A few key things and kind of like the premise, but like right, the tone is completely different. So yeah, I don't yeah. know if that's something similar here as well. Worth noting, a director I'm not super familiar with, although he does he has done tons of things we are familiar with. So this was directed by Arthur Penn, and he's the same guy who did The Miracle Worker, which we discussed already on the podcast. He's Bonnie and Clyde. So he has some massive movies under his belt. Again, honestly, skimming his list real quick, those might be the two that I've seen or heard of, but those are big ones. So definitely a respected director there. Okay, we're probably ready to get into basically the cameos who showed up in this movie here. Yeah. I can start with uh, Wild Bill Hickok here. And I keep thinking we talked about Wild Bill Hickok before, but it's probably just because you and I have talked about the series Deadwood and have talked about Bill Hickok mm-hmm. before, but mm-hmm. not, I don't think, actually on the podcast for anything, because I don't think he's come up before, right? I don't think he has. Okay. No, I mean, maybe, maybe in discussions of like Wyatt Earp or something... Just or just talking about Deadwood or right, other old, right. but like yeah, never, never in the timeline. No, right. So he's a significant character in, in Deadwood, but uh, yeah, we just, we haven't done that. That'd be, that would be something for me fun to do in the future. Would be uh, a, a mini series on Deadwood here, which is a really good show on HBO. I think we would both recommend. So what's funny too, though, is uh, both in this film and in say Deadwood, there's a tendency to hire too old of actors to play Wild Bill because he was 39 when he was killed. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and so they always hire these guys in their fifties and sixties to play Wild Bill Hickok as this like old retired gunslinger playing poker. And no, no, he never made it to forty. Right? Yeah, which is so strange because like even like the mental image of Wild Bill in right. my mind is that kind of like older guy. But then you, I get you thirty nine. Thirty nine was older in the, in the in the eighteen seventies. Yeah. Looks a little different than you That's know thirty nine today, but but still like it's not it's not that right. it's not that much different like i like literally gray hair i'm like you think of like the gray haired right right old gunslinger guy yeah 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 so he was born in 1837 um and bill is not his name wild bill is a nickname that we'll get to james butler hickok is actually his name uh born in illinois and his father was an abolitionist who helped with the underground railroad and all that kind of stuff uh he's the kind of you know guy that grew up around guns and which is good with guns his whole life. And when he turns 
18 or becomes of age here. He just kind of heads heads west for opportunity, like so many young men at that time. Uh, although some people say he actually might have had to escape uh, Illinois after getting in a, a fight that, you know, anyway, might have had the law after him. So anyway, mm. he does end up in Kansas during Bleeding Kansas. So it's kind of surprising with, uh, we, you know, think of Santa Fe Trail, and they included all those people who weren't around and then they don't include Wild Bill Hickok, who actually probably was around, because they were kind of focused right. more on the soldier side of things than... Anyway, it's also possible that he saved a young Buffalo Bill Cody in Kansas at, at one point. Uh, and we actually do see Buffalo Bill Cody make a brief cameo in the movie, and they don't talk about any connection between those two, but they would have known each other. Man, too, looking through Wild Bill Hickok, we always talk about our candidates for most interesting people. Man, he's he's got some highlights here. It's nothing too crazy because you know he didn't you know didn't live as long as you might think. But like he's basically lots of different people at the same time. Like he also got mauled by a bear, Hugh Glass, <laughs> and Hugh Glass doesn't have yeah. all the other things that Wild Bill Hickok had. But and and he actually did kill it. So we talked about Hugh Glass, the, his the party he was with ended up showing up to kill the bear that had attacked him and left him for dead. Well, yeah, Hickok ends up. As he's getting mauled by the bear, he does kill it with his knife, and it's like very messed up in in the attack. And uh, it's almost like because he's famous for so many other things, you don't even think about uh, him also being mauled by a bear. Although, also too, if you're 39 years old and in the mid or old west and had been mauled by a bear in your youth, yeah, maybe you do look 60 when you're 39. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and then. Uh, uh, he was in Nebraska a little bit after the Bleeding Kansas stuff, or on the tail end of that, in 1861, so right about the time of the Civil War starting and all the other things we talked about, Hickox in Nebraska at that time. The details of this, there's a, there is a gunfight he's evolved in, and uh, the details are disputed, so no one really knows exactly how it played down, but basically there was a fight over money owed for a business deal, and however it shook down, you know, shots end up getting fired, and... Hickok is kind of credited credited with putting an end to the fight by you know basically killing a guy with the gun, but the other people may have been shot too at the same time. And Hickok is tried, but ends up getting acquitted on grounds of self defense. But this is kind of the first time he's involved with like a notable uh, gunfight. Then, because the Civil War does break out, he gets involved with the Union Army. He's a, a spy, scout, sharpshooter, def- definitely that type of guy that we see from a lot of these frontiersmen as the war broke out. So he gets the nickname Wild Bill. Again, this guy's name is James Butler Hickok. He gets the nickname Wild Bill during the Civil War. But again, we're not exactly sure the origins of that nickname. Watching a video on YouTube, the most common or the most the theory that made the most sense to me is one that Bill himself did not like. So if you look at pictures of him, he had this very large nose. And so mm. the idea is that. People started calling him, maybe even mostly behind his back, Duck Bill, because he had a big nose. And then because of his temperament and the gunfighting stuff, Duck Bill turned into Wild Bill. And then he, because he hated the Duck Bill nickname, started telling people his name was William. So he'd have a reason to be called oh. Bill that had nothing to do with <laughs> Duck Bill. There are a couple other theories, maybe, you know, aliases and all those kinds of things. But man, that's the one that really kind of stuck out for me that he just. Had the big nose, hated to be calling Duck Bill, so he's like, yeah, I'm William. And then uh, that becomes Wild Bill. And so another thing this video I was watching talked about is the extent to which the gunfights, the quick draw, two guys staring each other down the street, who draws first, all that kind of thing, was actually 
extremely rare in the Old West. That almost right. never happened. That's a one of those Hollywood things yes. where the reason that we think that that happened so much is because it was so popular in Western movies, right. not necessarily because it was happening all the time in real life. Right. Almost like a Viking horns on their helmet kind of thing. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like I said, it looks cool in a movie, but it's ex- extremely rare, like to the point that they almost never happened. But one that did happen involved Wild Bill Hickok. So I I thought this is kind of an interesting story. So again, he was he was a large a poker player for a lot of years as like even like his main profession after he had had some stints as a lawman. And basically this again, a lot of these accounts vary or whatever, but the gist I got was he's playing poker and there's a guy in the, you know, saloon or whatever that he owes money to and this guy's getting kind of lippy or you know, he's basically almost like darn right, you know, taunting Bill during this poker game. And Bill doesn't like that, obviously, but everyone else in the bar is like buddies with that guy. And so Bill kind of has to just like sit there and take it. Right. And uh, otherwise, if he throws down, he's going to get, he's going to be done. But the guy gets so brazen. That's the word I was looking for, brazen. The guy gets so bold and brazen that he straight up like grabs Bill's like pocket watch off of him. Like he just takes takes Bill's watch straight from him while he's playing cards. Basically says, I'll keep this as collateral till you pay what you owe me kind of thing. Yeah. And again, Bill just has to take it. And he says, okay, well, at least, you know, don't wear it out in public where people are going to know you have my watch kind of thing. Like, let's just keep it on the DL and uh, I'll get you your money, blah, 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 blah. And the guy's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And like, I don't know if it's the next day or whatever. Anyway, the guy just won't shut up about it. And now he is out there talking. I don't think he actually goes around town with the watch, like, you know, swinging it or whatever. But he is like, yeah, I think I'm just basically just starts talking about how he's going to, yep, carry that, walk down the street there with Bill's watch. <laughs> what right. do people say? Bill's like, yeah, we're done. We're fighting. We're, we're going to do this. Where you want to do this? And so they do kind of start, they do have the, the showdown in the street with the pistols uh, over this watch issue and Bill's pride, essentially. And that's just it. Bill was just, as far as, it's the same thing as far as who shot first. And I think the most common story is that the other guy shot and missed. And then Bill just, boom, takes him out like one shot, uh, dead eye kind of thing. Again, accounts vary on that. But because gunfights like that were so rare, that made national news. That these two guys threw down and faced off against each other. Again, this fight's probably the reason most of these Hollywood stories even exist. Because this one did happen. And it seems so mundane. Like, what do you mean? It's just a gunfight? Yeah. The gunfight, because most of these right, didn't yeah. actually happen. <laughs> exactly. So it kind of just starts creating this legend of Wild Bill. And again, th- these were the kind of stories that were written about. We think about all the Davy Crockett tales or the Jim Bowie fight. Like when these little things did happen, they created such a mystique in the like the national zeitgeist at the time because right. they were so uncommon. Right. And think about like how many not the like with the quick draw stuff that all can kind of trace its origin back to this fight. And then, like, all the big, like, Western movie climaxes where it's, like, the whole town erupts in, in gunfire and shootouts and, and gunfights. And, like, that's I mean, not entirely, but a lot of that is, like, gunfight at the OK Corral, which is an actual historical event that actually happened. Right. But there wasn't a gunfight at the OK Corral in every town, you know, every right. month in the Old West. Right. We're still talking about 150 years later because it was that rare. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of crazy how... uh Hollywood has ruined us for all that. And, uh, but yes, uh, Hickok did also fight in the Indian Wars out west under Custer. And Custer was apparently very impressed with him. 
after that, around that time, uh, 1869, so we're about you know five years after the Civil War, four years, uh, he is the Marshal of Hayes, Kansas, which you know it doesn't. It's exactly that would be just a little bit after our you know Dunbar from Dances with Wolves would have passed through. He was quick to kill troublemakers, so like if the guys were getting drunk and rowdy and you know, maybe a little too free with the gunplay, yeah, they might find themselves dead under Bill's. Uh, Hand and keep not, it, keeping the riffraff out, you know. Ba- yeah, essentially, yes. And uh, <laughs> Hayes was a little squeamish about that. Like Hayes was like, "Yeah, we we can't have someone who's so quick on the trigger, dude." And so they kind of they kind of boot him out, and he ends up in Abilene. And Abilene is like, "Heck yes, that's the kind of no nonsense guy we want." <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy today to think about the difference between Hayes and Abilene, Kansas, being just what, like you know, an hour and a half apart or two hours apart on I seventy. Right. But the idea that you know Hayes is you know the frontier town and abilene right. is more of the cattle ranching town right yeah and yeah. so there's there's a definitely a difference in 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 how they were at the time and so yeah abilene's all about it <laughs> <laughs> but in one fight again so the, there's just still gunplay he is still he does still kill guys although he had not as many as his reputation would have you believe i think historians believe bill killed maybe six or seven people right but at that time that was a massive uh, head counts and it was something yeah. that was worth having these legends about you and so yes movies and they only must kill 30 40 guys like no six or seven which was a ton because people usually right. didn't kill people yeah it, it's sim- very similar to like when we talk about like doc holiday where yeah if you only go off like you know movies or like western lore it's like oh man he must have killed dozens of dudes it's like it was like a couple guys like he killed people right but it, it wasn't you know dozens and dozens of just stacking the bodies Right, and pre-Tombstone, uh, hadn't Wyatt Earp killed one man? Yeah, I think, well... Or if I mean, that. One that we know of, but, well, you know... Well, fair. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't just, like, yeah, shooting people left and right. Right, so yeah, so there were gunfights, but the, 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 they weren't the showdowns in the street. They were, they were more chaotic. Like, again, the, the OK Corral fight was definitely just chaos. So, but in Abilene, after another encounter where he was kind of taking out someone who had threatened him or whatever... In the chaos, a buddy of his was, like, approaching, and Bill just, like, turned and shot and killed his friend, thinking it was another assailant mm. uh, coming at him. And so, honestly, that that messed him up, and honestly, kind of, and Abilene was kind of like, yeah, maybe it's best if you move on, too. So, that, that was kind of the end of uh, Bill's days as a sheriff, and it's mm-hmm. from Abilene that he then goes, uh, basically hangs up his badge kind of thing goes to Deadwood with mm-hmm. the hopes of looking for gold up in Deadwood and just kind of beginning a card player there. Yeah. And that is that, that how we see him in the film here today. Yeah, and that's that's kind of interesting because like to me, Wild Bill spent so much time in Kansas, but he I don't he's not really associated in Can- with Kansas. He's not. He's, he's not. associated with Deadwood, but he only spent like the last couple years of his life there. Right. And I think he's only associated with Deadwood because, well, by that time he was kind of a living legend. So everyone there probably right. would have known him. And also that's where he was killed in a very famous incident that I'm sure we'll talk about. But right. it's like, to me, like I associate Wild Bill with Deadwood so much, but I, I often forget that he only spent a little bit of time there. Right. And again, not too similar than Earp in Tombstone where he was, wasn't there exactly. very long. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, because like Deadwood was only well, well, we'll we'll talk about it later. Yeah, and honestly though, I did I did really didn't basically because I felt like we had talked about it, but we really hadn't talked about the podcast, so I actually didn't do a deep dive on the event of him being killed. 
And in the oh, so okay. in, in the in the film, do they actually say it's Deadwood where our main character Dustin Hoffman encounters him? I don't remember. So okay, I mean, it has to be. It has to be. But we, they just don't ever say it. I didn't right? Think. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I don't remember if they say Deadwood in the movie. I guess I just I saw Wild Bill and I just assumed it was Deadwood. Right, and we do see him killed in the film. Right, and we see him killed in the movie, and so that cemented in my mind that okay, this has to be Deadwood. But I don't know if they ever say Deadwood right. or if there's okay. a sign or anything. Okay. But I just assumed that it was the whole time. But at the same time, the film does seem to kind of make some, uh, does some almost like you call them rounding errors, where it's just like they're just going for yeah. old west tropes. And if they needed to combine Deadwood into Dodge City, they would. I'm not saying they specifically did, but they were kind of keeping things generic on purpose. I feel like until you get to the Battle yeah. of Big, Little Bighorn itself, everything else is more generic old west. But yes, so uh, while Bill was killed while playing poker, the the idea of what was today called a dead man's hand, which is what, two aces, two eights, all black, something like that? Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eight, aces and eights is the dead man's hand. There is, so the, the eights are for sure clubs and spades. Okay. The aces, I think there is some dispute as to what suits they were. But yeah, aces and eights is, that's, that's what's okay. called a dead man's hand. And it's, yet again, another thing that's brought up in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. When he walks into the saloon, when Buster Scruggs does in the first little short film, yeah. and he sits down at the poker table, and they, you know, he says, you know, you mind if I play cards with you, basically? And they say, oh, if you play his hand, and he flips up the cards, and it's aces and eights. I missed that! And that's, that's why he says, I'd prefer not to. Ah, I totally missed that. That's so cool. That's, and so that whole conflict there in that saloon is precipitated on the fact that he doesn't want to play the, the dead, dead man's, man's hand. hand, aces and eights. Ah, because right, because he's almost like, well, that's a good hand. Why would he not play it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, I get. I, I had also read that even even the aces and eights may be apocryphal beyond just the suits, but uh, it's still a cool cool story regardless i mean maybe but that's yeah, yeah, yeah but that's the that's the origin of if you've ever heard the term dead man's hand or aces and eights like that's where that comes from is because that's supposedly the hand that wild bill was holding when he was killed yes and it was a man named uh jack mccall right right and now the film does that differently though they have it be some young kid who who claims that wild bill had killed his dad and again based on everything we talked about that's pretty unlikely just given, like, if, if it, w- it would have been someone, I don't know, it just, that that's unlikely. And again, we know that's not true, because it was uh, Jack McCall, who we don't really even know too close what their relationship was, right? I'm trying to think what they did in the show Deadwood. Uh, So Jack McCall had lost a bunch of money to him the previous day. Oh, uh, okay. So a disgruntled poker player, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's like a, it was like a wounded pride thing. So McCall lost a bunch of money to him, while Bill said, hey you should probably not be gambling because he's, he was like a drunk, a drunk guy. So he's like, you shouldn't be gambling. Don't worry about the losses. I'll cover them. I'll buy you some breakfast. Like, you know, just kind of clean yourself up. And that was like deeply insulting to McCall. And that's very much what they should do in the show Deadwood, I think. Yeah. So then the next day he comes in and it's not like in, I think in, in little big man, he's like kind of walks in and they have that he like shoots them. Well, it's even off sk- off camera because he's not our POV character. Oh, that's right, that's right. Uh, but in real life, he walked up and just he like yelled, "Take that!" or "Damn you, take that!" and just point blank shot him in the back of the head. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
It was rough. It was rough. Um, yeah, so Wild Bill was dead. And yeah, it, just in general, he did kind of do it throughout his whole whole life, just kind of let the reputation do the work, you know, for him and just kind of, he didn't mind that people were saying he'd killed 30, 40 people, that kind of like, he was just kind of like, uh, he did embrace the mystique of his, of Wild Bill, even as Wild Bill himself. And everyone, or he recognized that it was all, you know, it was very exaggerated, but he was kind of benefiting from that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of all I had on Wild Bill, but it, it is very interesting. And I, I definitely want, I would be curious to do a deeper dive for the most interesting tournament. Cause again, he is like, he just has so many different things there where he kind of is part, you know, wider part, uh, Hugh glass. Yeah. Part doc holiday with the poker playing. Yeah. So he's kind of interesting guy. Okay. You had Custer, right? Yeah. So in the movie, our main character, uh, Jack, I can't, no, I couldn't think of his name. Jack Crab. There it is. Spend some time as a, as a scout for Custer, who is a, uh, legendary old west figure probably the most famous cavalry soldier in the old west so he was born in ohio um, in december of 1839 as a a young kid he excelled in like primary school and he was actually a teacher for like a couple years after he graduated high school but when he went to west point which he attended from 1857 this academic underachiever, ornery kid doing doing pranks, got literally hundreds of demerits and graduated <laughs> dead last in his class at West Point, um, which I think is kind of funny. Like he, it's kind of like he uh, he leaves the the small town in Ohio and goes to West Point and kind of like finds himself as this like ornery troublemaker kid. I think that's kind of funny. And, and just that he's this kind of, you know, irreverent punk back, you know, 150 years ago. When you you always think about all the pictures from that time. and The past always seems like they took themselves so seriously. But right. George Custer was kind of a screw-around cut-up, just like you would see right. today. But 100 exactly. years ago, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was, uh, in his junior year at West Point, he was actually, like, hospitalized and uh, rendered sterile for the rest of his life because he got gonorrhea so bad from <laughs> prostitutes in New, in New York where oh he would gosh. sneak away from West Point to go be with these prostitutes that he got, like, really, really bad gonorrhea. <laughs> but so when he, when he graduated in 1861, though, in June 1861, it's kind of like he couldn't have picked a better time to graduate from West Point dead last in your class because they're not kicking anybody out of the Army in june of 1861 two months after the civil war starts right right so he is basically immediately goes from west point to the battlefield um he fights in several civil war battles he's kind of like so we talked about jack crab in the movie being like a forrest gump of the old west custer's kind of a forrest gump of the civil war so he uh is commissioned in the army in 1861 june 1861 right at the beginning of the war he fights in several very famous battles, the First Battle of Bull Run, Antietam, the Siege of Yorktown. He becomes a general at the age of just 23 and is put in command of the Michigan Cavalry Brigade and fights at Gettysburg. To your point, he's already kind of been in multiple of our movies then, right? Like he was in Santa Fe Trail, erroneously, but then was he also in our, was he in the film Gettysburg? Or is he just kind of there and less known at the time? Um, just looking at the, looking at the Wikipedia page for it, it doesn't look like he was. Oh, okay. 
There's so many so many names there I couldn't remember. The the cavalry battle was on the third day, so it was the same day as Pickett's charge, but in a different area, and it's called the Battle of East Cavalry Field. And it was basically a battle between units led by on the Union side. Custer and on the uh, Confederate side was Jeb Stewart because that was by the that he had finally showed up by that time. Okay, so he fights at Gettysburg. He's also part of the campaigns of Virginia and is actually present at Appomattox Courthouse when Lee and Grant signed their truce. And actually, General Sheridan was so impressed by Custer's performance during the war that he bought the table that they signed the truce on and gave it to Custer's wife as a gift after the war. Huh. So Custer's family owned the table that the truce between Lee and Grant was signed on, which I thought was kind of cool. So he's at Appomattox Courthouse. After the war is over, the army goes through this big downsizing. So they have you know, this force of millions of, of troops, mm. most of whom were drafted, so they just go back to civilian life. The officer corps is also downsized. So in order for... Custer to remain in the army, which he really wanted to do because he liked being a cavalry officer, he had to take a demotion from major general all the way back down to lieutenant colonel. So he's put in charge of the uh, 7th U.S. Cavalry Regiment, which is headquartered in Fort Riley, Kansas. It's a much smaller force, and it is made up of kind of like societal rejects and immigrants and like just guys who had nothing else going on, nothing really better to do. Mm. You know, the guys that were, the enlisted guys that were still in the army after the Civil War was over were not necessarily always the cream of the crop. Because they're basically people who had no life to go back to. They had no business. They had no, yeah, family. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And Custer was also probably dealing with PTSD. Uh, He was talked about how he was very cruel, had a quick temper, but also, I mean, in addition to all of the, you know, traumatic stress that he would have gone through being a cavalry commander during the Civil War, he's also dealing with, number one, a demotion, and number two, this kind of lost sense of purpose. So during the Civil War, he has, you know, he knows, he knows the mission, you know, it's, you know, defeat the Confederates, you know, get the get the union back together, all this stuff. After the war is over, it's kind of like, well, now what? He's just kind of out west, Fort Riley, Kansas, which at the time is kind of middle of nowhere frontier country. And uh, he's not a he's not a fun guy to serve under. <laughs> he was actually he went AWOL to go see his wife and got caught being AWOL and was suspended from the army for almost a year where they basically like just kind of like kicked him out of the army for a year then let him come back. But yeah, he was he was not having a great time at Fort Riley. Uh lucky for him though, the US government at the time was really wanting to start pushing the Indians more out of the areas where they were. So he participates in a bunch of different um engagements during the Plains Wars. He led an attack, actually, that we see in the movie in 1868 on a Cheyenne camp called the Washita Massacre. The way that it happens in the movie and the way that it happened in real life are kind of, they're, they're different. Oh, that massacre is a real specific massacre. It's based on a real okay, specific massacre okay. called the Washita Massacre. So in the movie, I 
think they say that it's the Washita River that they're next to. I I don't know if that's just okay. me back remembering that or right. if that's if that actually happens. But yeah, that's based on the Washita massacre. But that's so that's why Jack Crab ends up hating Custer so much in the film. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in the movie, it's basically all women and children. Mm. In real life, there it was everybody, but they still killed women and children. Um, they also, just like we see in the movie, they shot like hundreds of horses that hmm. belong to the natives. So like in the movie where they talk about shoot the ponies, shoot the ponies, and it's, that's like a whole scene. Right. Like, that happened in real life. Oh, huh. Uh, Custer did actually order those their horses shot. In addition to that, he also took over 50 women and children prisoner and took them with them when they left to prevent the Indians from counterattacking. Oh, human shields, basically. Human shields, exactly. Yep. <sighs> So that was in uh, in 1868. In 1873, he uh, gets... So the Bushida Massacre was in, um, I think, present-day Oklahoma. In 1873, he gets moved to, to the Dakota Territory uh, further north to keep Lakota from attacking railroad workers. And it was at this time that Custer gives his kind of his biggest contribution to the state of, well... Dakota Territory at the time, but present-day South Dakota, near what is now Custer, South Dakota, in the French Creek, Custer says that he finds gold. And so that leads to the Black Black Holes, Black Hills Gold Rush of 1874. Oh, Custer precipitated that whole rush? Yeah. Also directly leads to the town of Deadwood being founded. Huh. Yeah, you don't associate Custer with that. Right. But basically all of that was precipitated by Custer saying that he found gold in the French Creek in 1874. And that leads to, like, this whole chain of events, leads to Deadwood being founded. Also, that gold rush makes the U.S. government way more interested in... In the removal. I'll put air... air, Right, I'll put air quotes around this. Acquiring the land from the Lakota Indians. They initially want to buy it. And this it's so motivated... They're so motivated by the gold because of the economic issues that the government was facing after the end of the Civil War. Mm. So they're they're really interested in Indian removal one way or another. So we'll put a pin in the Indian removal stuff. In 1876, Custer is summoned to Washington to testify about alleged corruption issues involving the, at the time, Secretary of War, William I don't know if it's Belknap or Belknap, B-E-L-K-N-A-P. Uh, I'll just say Belknap. I think that's I think that's probably right. And Orville Grant, who was the brother of at the time president Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, right, right. So Custer goes and he testified in Congress and wrote articles uh, accusing both William Belknap and Orville Grant of trading post kickbacks and extortion. Didn't provide really any evidence that this stuff was going on but was more than happy to to kind of throw mud at them in the political sphere it was also and this is something that i didn't know until i was doing the research and i thought it was something that they made up for the movie but he was also possibly considering running for president on the democratic ticket in 1876 i heard i saw i saw that as well that it's like they're like no seriously he was that he was thinking yeah yeah Right, yeah. So, like, in the movie where he's talking about, like, I'm going to be the next president, I was like, okay, like, I, they're just 
they're writing this into the character to make him seem like he has these, you know, delusions of grandeur and these big aspirations. But no, that was real. He he did have political aspirations and was possibly considering a democratic run uh, in 1876. So throwing all this political mud and like making a name for himself by testifying in Congress and writing these articles. And oh, by the way, he's also a Civil War hero and was perceived as a war hero in the Indian Wars at the time, too, even though it, that legacy is looked back on completely different today but at the time oh right he's he's helping out the white settlers because they're all that matters right exactly exactly so like if he would have lived past 1876 like he he might have been a pretty successful politician huh so he actually on his after he's done testifying he like sticks it to grant in kind of a kind of a cool way because he was summoned to testify before congress he wasn't there, like he wasn't free to leave Washington, but he did. He just gets on a train and just he said, "All right, I I did what I came here to do, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go back to my to my troops out west." So he gets on a train going west, and Grant actually has him arrested in Chicago. But there's so much political pressure on Grant, not only because Custer was very popular at the time. But also because there were a lot of people that with, you know, the South still being basically occupied by Union soldiers, and now he's arresting this, you know, quote unquote, dissident political opponent. It's like he's under this, all this political pressure to let him go because it's like, oh, you know, you're, these are all things that make you kind of seem like a tyrant, Hmm. at least can be spun to make it right, right, make it look that way. And he knew that Custer had all this cavalry experience and because Grant really wanted to kick the Lakota Indians out of the Black Hills, he was like, I can't afford to have one of my best cavalry leaders sitting in jail just because, you know, I want to prove a point. So I'll let him go. He can go back to Dakota. Right. So initially, the plan was to buy the Black Hills area from the Lakota Indians, but that area is sacred to them. It actually still is to this day. And just a, just a little side note, there have been attempts by the government to kind of like uh, pay reparations or, or back pay for that land. And to this day, the Lakota, the, uh, Lakota Indians refuse to take money because it said that's, that's still our land. You're just like illegally occupying it. Like that's still right. ours. Which is why Mount Rushmore is horribly offensive to many Native Americans, because you just defaced a sacred centuries, or, you know, I mean, around right. them predates humans, and it's sacred to them, and we're like, yes. hey, let's carve some white guys in it. Right. Oh my yeah. gosh. Let's, let's, carve, let's carve all of the, all of these historical figures of this country that kicked you out and murdered you by the thousands and continues to, you know what you consider illegally occupy that space to this day. Oh, and by the way, it was given to them by a treaty. It was guaranteed that that land was theirs by the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. And then the government was basically like, JK, LOL, get out. Oh, but there's gold here. Yeah. 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 yeah they, they have every right to be, to be pissed off about that. Okay. So initially they tried to buy the land. Lakota refused. So they said, all right, we're going to take it by force. We are going to, but they needed a kind of, they needed a pretext for war. They, they didn't, they didn't want to just say, 
we're going to war with you because you don't want to leave. What they did was they said, okay, we'll set aside these reservations for you. You have until January 31st, 1876 to get there. Which, even if they wanted to move to those reservations, would have been possible, would have, would have been impossible, because it was the middle of winter. Oh, right. They couldn't travel anywhere. Even if they wanted to move, the earliest they could have done was the spring. Right. So they basically gave them... An impossible deadline. A, an, an order that that they knew that they were going to refuse in the first place, but that even if they didn't want to refuse, would have been impossible. So they say, oh, look at that. We gave you this deadline, and you're not gone, so now we're going to force you out. And so that's where we get to uh, the battle of, which I had always called it the Battle of Little Bighorn. Right. But it's the battle, I, technically the name is Battle of the Little Bighorn because it's the name of a river. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know why, why I never learned it that way. Like, is it, I'm guessing it's a branch. Like, you have the Bighorn River, and then like the smaller branch would be the Little Bighorn River. One, yep, exactly. Right, yeah. Right. So there's the Bighorn River in Montana, and then the Little Bighorn River, which feeds into it, and that's where the battle was. It was near the confluence of those rivers, but it was on the banks of the Little Bighorn River. So yeah, that's that was something else that like I, I never, I never knew. But anyway, so as part of this push by uh, U.S. troops to try and remove the Indians that refused to leave, Custer comes across this encampment. He's doing a, a kind of a scouting mission. They knew that there were Indian forces in the area, but they didn't know exactly how many or exactly where they were. So they're on this scouting mission, and they come across this encampment on June 25th, 1876, what Custer estimates to be just... 800 people which by the way he thought that that 800 included women and children it didn't mm. it was all warriors and it was more like a few thousand oh the exact number isn't known but i think the best estimates is like between three and five thousand warriors all of them and he's thinking 800 men women and children right exactly yeah that sounds like he's set up for disaster 100 <laughs> percent um <laughs> so it's this massive force of lakota dakota cheyenne and arapaho warriors um, under the command of uh, Sitting Bull, and um, also some of them were under the command of Crazy Horse, who we'll talk about later. And we'll talk about Sitting Bull later, too. So he he thinks that the force is much smaller. He also incorrectly assumes, oh, well, if I attack them, they'll just leave. They'll just run away. Which is, again, something that they show in the movie. He said, oh, we're going to do this attack, and they'll just either crumble, and we'll kill them all, or they'll run away. No big deal. That's not how it went down. So... The exact events of the battle are kind of disputed and not really well known or documented because all of Custer's soldiers were killed. So there was oh, no right. one there was no one to like say, Oh, we were gonna we were gonna do this flanking maneuver and then we were gonna send this these guys up the middle and these guys were they were all killed. Dead men don't tell tales. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There there are some there were some interviews later on with some of the uh Indian warriors who were there, but some of those conflict or they don't they don't really line up so the the exact events of the battle are not known but custer and everyone with him was killed and this is interesting i didn't realize uh or i didn't i never knew this before but uh not only custer two of his brothers were there they were killed his brother-in-law killed and one of his nephews also killed well because everyone was killed so like the whole conceit right. of the the book little big man is that he is the sole white survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Right. And like, so he's fictional, but that's kind of like the whole 
thing he hangs his story on. Yeah. So, yeah. So Custer was killed on June 26th, uh, 1876. There are some differing accounts of ways that his body was mutilated, including an arrow being shoved into a certain uh, part of his body uh, as supposed revenge for a supposed sexual assault that occurred. So there's there was a... Uh, of course, if anybody was going to give a chief's daughter gonorrhea, it'd be George Custer. <laughs> well, okay, so it wasn't... It's actually funny that you bring that up. I, I, I'm making that up, but I'm saying that kind of thing would fit his MO, it feels like. Right, so there was a Cheyenne chief named Little Rock who had a daughter whose name is and I'm probably butchering this pronunciation, Mona Seta, who was said to have given birth to a child in 1869 that was supposedly fathered by Custer. However... We thought he's sterile, right. Because Custer was sterile from his gonorrhea, it's thought that the soldier that actually impregnated her, raped her, was Custer's brother, Thomas, who was also killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn. But, yeah, so that's why there's that whole story about, you know, oh, he, you know, as revenge for that, they took an arrow and they shoved it in his, yeah. So Custer's body, well, it's probably his body, but there are historians who think that that maybe they dug up the wrong one. Um, It was disinterred, because all of it, you know, the soldiers there, when they found him, uh, when the rest of the the U.S. Army shows up and and buries him, they're, they're buried there at Little Bighorn in montana they think that they might have disinterred the wrong body but the body that is said to be george custer was uh disinterred and moved to uh west point so he Mm. his grave now is at west point and that was in 1877 so yeah that's the the life and times of of george custer forrest gump of the civil war (laughs) but when you when you think about it kind of a kind of a monster to be honest and well, and we get a glimpse of that in the film. That's what I was kind of wanting to maybe get into a little more with is uh, the film. They make him downright crazy. You're almost like a megalomaniac, or like uh, he's like I don't know. He's he's pompous, but also like borderline schizophrenic. I feel like, and he's just a very odd oh. guy in the film. But that seems pretty close. By the time he in the movie, yeah. By the time he's in combat, you know, he's like completely out of his mind right. he's like talking to jack crab and calling him mr president and he's like doesn't know where he is and i yeah i i'm not really sure so that what, might be a step too far but it's almost like right. not necessarily unrealistic yeah he was he was definitely he definitely had mental health issues of of some sort whether that was an, a mental illness or whether PTSD, it was right. ptsd something like that yeah he was definitely not well psychologically which yeah they they do illustrate that in the movie probably go a little over the top as to what it what he would have actually been like but yeah in in the movie too they they also kind of portray him as well one of his subordinates calls him impestuous and is like you're basically you're like you're acting like a child and so i don't i don't know if that's necessarily historically accurate but yeah in the movie they definitely do not portray him in a in a good light he's not he's not the hero of the movie <laughs> no no it's not like in uh santa fe trail where you have custer who's was it ronald reagan was custer, yeah, reagan was custer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah where he's just like you know charming, charming polished yeah. guy like you know likable and well like 
no, that's <laughs> that's like kind of like the two the two extremes of of how Custer's portrayed. Oh, right. Film. He 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 was he was he was never never as uh, straight laced button up as Reagan in Santa Fe Trail, but he probably didn't quite go as crazy as the guy in uh, uh, Little Big Man. Sure, yeah. I do like how they did the whole. So he had basically spared. He had spared Crab's life because Crab had been back and forth with living with the Cheyenne. They basically, you know, stay his execution and Custer decides not to have him hanged. But he knows, like, hey, Crab hates me. He, the whole massacre thing we talked about, that's why, you know, Crab had lived with the Cheyenne. So they're massacring them. Crab's like, oh, I'm done with this guy. And he actually even thinks about assassinating Custer at one point and, and stops himself. And Custer even recognizes that fact and lets him, lets him live so he can. He can be all magnanimous about it and right. lord it over him. Well, that okay. That I, I actually thought that that was kind of a that was kind of an interesting moment in the in the movie when yeah he he goes into his tent basically to assassinate him and kind of like loses the nerve. Custer recognizes that and said, "Oh, you came here to kill me, didn't you? But now you can't." And he's like, "I'm not going to kill you because he already decided to let him live." And he said, he tells him, oh, "Your life." Right. Your life is not worth the reversal of a Custer decision. That's right. That's a good line. And that's yeah. the thing that kind of like breaks Crab. Right. Yeah. And so as they're head, as we're approaching the battle of the Little Bighorn, Custer's like, okay, so he's our scout ostensibly, but I know he hates me, so I'm just going to do the opposite of whatever he says. Yeah. So when they're talking about you know the numbers of the natives nearby or whatever, and should we approach or what we or should we attack? And so we asked Crab, huh? basically he's like telling, telling the other soldier, like, yeah, all right, watch this. You know, Crab, what should we do? He's like, you go down there. Right. You go down there and fight them. Which is so then, you know, Custer, you would think, be like, oh, well, I'm supposed to do the opposite of what this guy says. He's like, aha, you're using reverse psychology. You know right. I want to do the opposite of what you said. <laughs> so you actually want me to not go down there to fight your friends. So I am. Right. It's, it's like that scene of Princess Bride. So I obviously could not drink the cup in front of me. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's like no crab knows the number disparage you know, the number discrepancy that you were talking about. So Custer's right. saying, "I'll go kill the eight hundred men, women, and children." And Crab's like, "No, I know there's thousands down here. You're going to die. Go die." Yeah, yeah. It's actually kind of a brilliant scene there. Yeah. So the other thing that the movie. I feel like it does a disservice because it, it gets these historical characters. You know, we get a decent representation of Wild Bill Hickok. We get a decent representation of George Custer. But then they leave out the actual Native American men involved that we're going to talk about here briefly, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Right. And they instead use just fictional proxies. Right. Now, part of that does seem to be because, hey, we're having him live with the natives. And he has this one, essentially his foster father, he calls him grandfather, is... This uh, old Lodgeskins character, who is a very cool character, and it would be maybe you could argue weird to make that Sitting Bull. Yeah, even age wise, it probably wouldn't be quite right. So I kind of get that, but at the same time, it's like man, I hate when they keep the white guys real as the real people, and then they make up fictional natives and like that. I don't know. So it feels like it does a little bit of disservice to them. And I feel like man, at the very least, they could have had like a cameo. Of yes. somebody like after the battle or during the battle have have a sitting bull be in that tribe or his buddy instead of his grandfather yeah or like have you know when oh, i forget the name of the of the guy that basically saves him after 
after Little Bighorn. Yeah, I forget that character's name too, yeah. Younger Bear. Younger Bear yeah. rescues him from the battlefield. When Younger Bear rescues him, maybe have him mention something about, oh, and here's Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Well, I'm know. saying have Younger Bear be Crazy Horse. Oh, have him be Crazy Horse. Yeah, why not replace Crazy Bear, Younger Bear with Crazy Horse? I, I, and it, it, that could you know, open up another can of worms, but... yeah. Or if you know, so we're saying so. Jab Crab was born what eighteen forty nine because he's ten in eighteen fifty nine. Is that about right. right? Yeah. So well, you know, Sitting Bull here was born in eighteen thirty one. So you can almost have a father type figure maybe yeah. going on there. Yeah. And at least an older brother. I don't. Anyway, so there was there was opportunities, but I do really like the character of Old Lodge Skins. But again, it's like you could have done the real uh, Sitting Bull. Which so I'm going to talk about. We are kind of going long here. <laughs> So, Sitting Bull, the actual Sitting Bull, which we are mentioning because he is... Everything Logan's been talking about with Custer and the Black Hills and Battle of the Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull's right there in all this action. So, the movie leaving him out is, again, I wouldn't say offensive necessarily, but just seems odd and something they probably wouldn't do nowadays. So, he was born in about 1831 in what is now South Dakota or maybe Montana, depending on, you know, we don't know all the stuff uh, exactly. He is a member of the Lakota branch of the of the Sioux. So also worth noting is how all this stuff we've been talking about does tie into the Dances with Wolves area. Uh, when you get into that, you know, maybe Montana, maybe Wyoming, maybe South Dakota, maybe Colorado, like you know, with the with the Cy- Cy- uh, Cheyenne and Pawnee, that's all very connected to this part of the world. So like even uh, Crab's family being killed by the Pawnee and then he's rescued by the Cheyenne. That's straight up. Uh, dances with wolves because remember in the yeah. book it was cheyenne not uh sue and right. so that's very very similar and and the fact in fact that whole time and i didn't know this either like little big man because he's a smaller guy played by dustin hoffman who's not a tall actor and he has a big attitude you know big personality that's why they give him the indian name little big man right and it's, yeah yes it's a play on little bighorn but just the idea that the title of the film is his indian name just like dances with wolves so there's some parallels there as well yeah so, yeah, Sitting Bull, just kind of growing up in the Lakota tribe, uh, gets his first bison kill at 10. Another thing we see in the film that seems so bizarre, but it, it, it was a real practice. And I forget what it was called. It's called, like, catching coup or whatever, when you basically run up to your enemy and try to hit him with that stick and, uh, and then mm-hmm. run away. We see They still show that in the film. Like, the, the whites are, like, trying to kill them or whatever, while the Indians are just running around with this big curled stick and just try to sneak in like, boom, tap, tap him on the, on the butt with it. And like ran right off. That was a real thing. Cause they considered it. It was a non nonviolent way to embarrass the heck out of enemy. Right. You have your enemy. Cause, Oh, you're so unskilled. I can just ride right up to you and touch you with this stick and you yeah. can't do anything about it. And so that was a real thing. And like, this is the kind of thing that a young, like teenage sitting bull would ride into quote battle and be maybe against other native tribes, and they would just kind of, I think it was called catching coup. I could be wrong on that. But, yeah, so that was real. I thought that was kind of an interesting, interesting thing I'd never heard of before. By the time he was 14, he's considered a warrior. He was always just a natural leader. Essentially, in his world, he kind of just ignored the white settlers at first. Yeah, they were kind of moving out west. Yeah, they were kind of in their area. But a younger sitting bull just kind of was indifferent. He's like, he couldn't care. He didn't care one way or another. He didn't like them. He didn't dislike them. He was kind of just whatever. But then the Dakota War of 1862 starts in Minnesota, and the Homestead Act uh, was also that same year. And so this means now a lot of this land is, uh, you know, 
given away to white settlers and is either bought or just straight up taken away from native tribes. This growing animosity then ultimately finds Sitting Bull in combat against the U.S. in 1863-1864. So kind of you know, the stuff going on during uh, the Civil War. Native settlements are destroyed and they're forced to move farther and farther out west. The natives knew they were obviously at a disadvantage in open battle, so they usually preferred raids or ambushes, which again, a lot of you know movies we kind of see over the years, we, we see a lot of that, and that's kind of why. Just lots of fighting, treaties back and forth. It's kind of all the things you, you know, and it gets kind of overwhelming. And then you do get into when gold is discovered in Black Hills and with uh, everything Logan talked about with Custer being involved there, with the land legally belonging to the Lakotas and all the stuff with the government offers to buy the Black Hill that they turned down, everything Logan mentioned, war, ultimately then Battle of Little Bighorn, the Sioux, which again is the larger branch under which the Dakota are under. And this, so even though they win that battle, it's kind of considered the beginning of the end of the Sioux out west there. Sitting Bull is not, after the war, uh, after the battle, sorry, uh, Sitting Bull is not interested in surrender or negotiating. He just, because again, why would you, what reason do you have to trust anything exactly. that the U.S. government is going to put in, on your plate there? He moves briefly, briefly to Canada, I guess, to kind of escape, but that really didn't go well. Um, and they do kind of allow him to retire to a reservation uh, for a bit. And so he kind of just, you know, becomes less of a major player and less of a, oh, I hate to say causing trouble because I feel like he was in the right in all of this, but uh, uh, he does end up being friends with Annie Oakley. Huh. Like, like he, oh, I forget what the name was. Like, he even gave her a nickname and stuff that she would then proudly use in some of her shows and stuff. Uh, he meets Buffalo Bill. Uh, he does actually then, so this is, you know, in, later in life here, he's, Sitting Bull's making money, like selling pictures and making appearances at these kind of old West kind of shows. Uh, he's finally arrested by the government though so he's kind of always a wanted man with his role in you know the indians uh not for what uh, not cooperative well see i guess i didn't even write that down i think it's just kind of he's it's almost like uh kind of like what we talked about with the guys in rrr where they're kind of always mm-hmm. wanted men for causing trouble and not cooperating so i don't know if there's a specific charge other than just like hey you're causing trouble kind of guy right you're always the one talking crap and getting people yeah. to not follow what we're trying to do i like, guess more just or- it might have been one of those situations where, like, they have whatever trumped-up charges that they can arrest anybody exactly. on at any time exactly. for, you know, just general being a nuisance. And it's like, oh, well, you know, he's not really that, not really causing that many problems right now, so we'll just, you know, not worth the effort. But then, like, if he does, then we could use this to say that, we you know, we're going to go arrest him or whatever. Right. So at the same time, he's this, you know... Oh, again, oddity is not the right word, but he's this, he's this uh, public figure of interest to the common people who think it's neat to get pictures of Sitting Bull or, you know, have him show up to a Wild Bill Annie Oakley show. He's also, you know, persona non grata with the U.S. government and kind of always a wanted man. So there is ends up being, and I didn't write the location down, but there ends up actually being a standoff gunfight where they're trying to apprehend Sitting Bull and he's killed in that fight. Like he's killed in a scuffle with uh, the U.S. government just like over trying to either uh, arrest him or just... Again, I didn't write the specifics down. It might be one like another one of those things where we don't know exactly how it all all played out. But he was, let's see, how old was he when that happened? He was in his late fifties. He was like fifty eight, fifty nine when that kind of showdown happened in eighteen ninety. So yeah, that was the end of of Sitting Bull. So what well, I actually think we'll probably get to. I actually did add another movie to the timeline because I felt like the more we, ca- anytime we come up with Native American stuff, 
my knee-jerk reaction is like, man, we are doing such a disservice by not doing a deep dive into everything the Native Americans went through as the whites moved west throughout the country. Right. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's the it's not about our podcast. It's about <laughs> the actual history of the country and how this stuff is never talked about. It's swept under the rug and every every history class we've ever taken growing up. And the fact that other people were here before our disease, our, the European diseases wipe out 90% of them. They still hang on and exist and are just completely neglected as even being human throughout the entire history of the United States. And then we're like, oh, why are they just now complaining about a team in Washington, D.C. named the freaking Redskins? It's like, because no one's amplifying their voices. There, there, there's so few of them here or they're, or they're tired of complaining publicly or no one puts a microphone in their face. Like, and again, I'm not saying everyone was uh, was offended by it or, you know, anyway, it's it's just so not talked about. And every time I could do a little bit of a research, it just seems like, why is this stuff never talked about? And anyway, so I do want to include, there's actually a movie about the massacre at Wounded Knee that I found on HBO that I think we're going to get to here uh, down the line. So I won't do any deeper a dive on, on the Sioux and everything there, but that ends up can be kind of, I think, the death knell of Native American resistance is with that massacre at Wounded Knee, but we'll uh, huh. we'll talk about that more down down the line. Okay. And so then, yeah, then the, then the one other figure uh, we want to talk about who was also involved in all this is uh, Crazy Horse. So give us a rundown of uh, Crazy Horse here, who was in the yeah. same tribe as uh, Sitting Bull, right? So I'm not or nearby. This, see this this is this is something else that I I need to be. Oh right. Does Lakota mean one big tribe or there are different tribes of Lakota? So it do, it doesn't right. So so like there's Sioux, right? And then right. Sioux you have the Lakota, the Dakota, and there's a few others, right, a few right. other like subgroups under Sioux. Right. So Crazy Horse was in the Oglala band of the Lakota. So he was a oh, Lakota. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sitting Sitting Bull was Lakota as well, right? Sitting Bull was Lakota, but I don't know if he was Ogallala. Right. 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 Yeah. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, something else we, that we suck at this, and we blame society. <laughs> yeah, and dude, it's so it's so every time this happens to me too, I'm like I'm so frustrated because it's like right. Okay, I I know I know the nuances of like okay, you're British, and also, but you're but you're Welsh. You know, right. or or you're you know you're British and Scottish, and then there's you know the different clans or whatever. It's like I understand all of that. Like that's all up here in my brain. Why have I never learned? You know, right? Oh, what's what is the difference between Sioux and Lakota and Oglala? Like, right? I don't know. It's overwhelming, and yeah. Anyway, we blame society. Yeah, but we will. <laughs> we will. We will learn it, and we will learn it, and we will. Teach others. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we will document it on this podcast, and so you can listen to it and learn what all that stuff means. Learn our poorly filtered version of this overwhelming history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're making an effort. We're making an effort. You listen to us regurgitate it from from uh, actual Wikipedia. Native Americans that know what the hell they're talking about, because uh, we <laughs> definitely don't. Um. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so. Crazy Horse, uh, not a lot is actually known about him as far as what was documented by white people who were writing stuff down. Because he distrusted them so much, he didn't have very many interactions, at least none that were good or on purpose. So he was born around 1840, uh, again, present day South Dakota, um, just like Sitting Bull. 
Um, he was a Lakota leader. Uh, the origin of his name, Crazy Horse, is unknown, though it was likely passed down from his father, whose name was also Crazy Horse. Mm. Something that was brought up in one of the videos that I watched about him that I thought was kind of interesting and informs why he had such a strong, like, revolutionary mindset. He, when he was born, that was the largest that the Lakota ever was. It was kind of like mm. the peak of Lakota power. Okay. And then as his life goes on, it only declines. So basically his whole life, he's born at a time where it's like, oh, Lakota's actually doing pretty good. And then as his life continues, it's like it only goes down. It's only declining. So that's like you can really see how someone born into that into that world, into that culture would have such a strong desire to fight back against that. Right. So he was said, as he was growing up, he was said to have had visions of his victories on the battlefield. Although he never was actually a chief, and that's something that a lot of articles that I read and even the monument of his, where he was killed, gets wrong. It's like, we'll refer to him as Chief Crazy Horse, and he, he wasn't ever actually a chief. Although he was named a shirt wearer for his tribe which is basically like a a warrior leader and it the it's actually kind of cool like the shirt that they would wear for it is like a is like a rawhide kind of looking shirt with like the stitching of like horses on it actually i'm gonna see if i can pull it up and share my screen with you and show it to you because it actually does look kind of cool oh and the stick thing i was i was talking about it's, it was called counting coup not catching coup oh okay so this is not Lakota and doesn't have the the horses on it, but this is a. Can you see this? Yes. An, an example of a uh, an Arapaho, uh, what they call a ghost shirt. But yeah, it's that it's that buckskin material with the tassels and then like the, the stitching in it. That this one has like birds and stars and stuff on it. But yeah, kind of a kind of a cool looking shirt, kind of drippy, as the kids say. <laughs> but anyway, so in yeah, so he was named a shirt wearer in 1866. In December of 1866, he leads an attack against U.S. forces led by a guy named William Fetterman. It resulted in the death of Fetterman and his 80s, over 80 soldiers. And up to that point, that was the uh, worst U.S. defeat in the Plains Wars out west. So a very skilled and very motivated warrior. In 1867, he convinced a married woman named Black Buffalo Woman to leave her husband named No Water and run away with him. No Water was pissed off, obviously, and <laughs> found them, caught up with them, and was uh, was going to kill Crazy Horse, decided not to, leaves with Black Buffalo Woman. And the two of them actually like kind of made amends later on because Crazy Horse gave him three horses as kind of like a, hey, sorry about that. But because because he uh, ran off with a married woman, he was stripped of the title of shirt wearer uh, in mm. 1867. He had a great mistrust and a severe hatred of white settlers. And in 1868, when the treaty at Fort Laramie was signed um, that gu guaranteed the Black Hills to the Lakota, Crazy Horse, while he was you know that that was something where it's like oh okay this is a good thing but he never he never trusted that that was going to be upheld he 
always was saying this is not going to this is not going to hold forever this treaty is not going to be honored even though right now sure it's a, it's a good thing that you know it's a it's a step in the right direction but i i don't think that it's that it's going to last uh and he wasn't wrong and he was always right yeah, yeah yeah because yeah just 6 years later was when custer discovers gold in the black hills and uh all of a sudden that treaty doesn't mean anything to the to the uh, american government anymore that mistrust actually led him to never sign anything. Uh-huh. Never never signed any documents, and he never had his photograph taken. So we don't actually know what he looks ah, like. So he intentionally avoided it. Like, you can go and see a picture of Sitting Bull, but... You can see tons of pictures of Sitting Bull. Yep. Right, several pictures. Right, he was charging people to take pictures of him. Exactly. Crazy Horse never had his picture taken, huh? Never had his, never had his photo taken. So... Uh, in 1871, he marries a woman named Blackshawl, and they have a daughter that same year named They Are Afraid of Her. Uh, but that's her name. Yeah, that's a good name. Yeah, I think that's pretty. I think it's a pretty sick name. It's pretty badass. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, the daughter died in 1874, probably from cholera. In that same year, 1874, the U.S. reneges on their deal that they signed in 1868 at Fort Laramie after the Black Hills gold rush. And so Crazy Horse is like, all right, that's it. We're going to go to war. We're, we're fighting for our land. We're not, you know, the government's telling us to leave, but we're not leaving. So he teams up with Sitting Bull to fight the government troops. He is at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. There are numerous accounts of him riding right through the front lines, being, you know, shot at multiple times, but he's never hit. Almost like a some of the accounts reminded me of that scene in Tombstone where uh, Wyatt Earp walks right out of the middle of the creek and everyone's shooting at him, but no one can hit him. And uh, actually, like we talked about in real life, how, you know, there's like bullet holes like in his coat and like in his bullet in his boot heel, but he's never actually hit, but he kills Curly Bill. A similar, a similar thing where Crazy Horse is like, you know, killing dudes, riding all through the lines, encouraging the... Uh, warriors that he's leading, um, but is never is never hit. After Little Bighorn, when, like you said, Sitting Bull leaves to go to Canada, Crazy Horse says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to keep fighting. So he keeps fighting throughout 1876. In January of 1877, he fought at the Battle of Wolf Mountain, which was like the last major battle between Crazy Horse, between those forces of Lakota, Dakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho warriors, the same group that was fighting at, at Little Bighorn is the last major engagement between them and government forces. But a harsh winter led to food shortages, which led to uh, a lot of his warriors kind of disbanding. And so he surrendered at Fort Robinson, Nebraska in May of 1877. After his surrender, he was confined to a reservation basically he wasn't in prison like in a jail cell but he wasn't allowed to leave this reservation called red cloud agency however he did his wife got sick so he took his wife to his parents to be better cared for and then when he returned he, w- he was arrested and then the exact events are unknown but on september 5th 1877 there was some sort of fight some sort of scuffle interaction that he has with his guards and he's stabbed with a bayonet and ends up dying later that later that night oh wow so 
like I said, he never had his photograph taken. There was one photograph that was published in 1956 that was supposedly a portrait of Crazy Horse that it was said to be taken at Fort Robinson, Nebraska. However, uh, most experts say, like, based on the the lighting and the set, like, not only was this probably not taken at Fort Robinson, Nebraska, it was also probably taken a lot later based on some of the stuff he's wearing, some of the subject matter in the background, that that picture is almost certainly not Crazy Horse, even though when it was published, it was said to be Crazy Horse. But it's probably just, you know, it's published in 1956, so probably just some random guys like oh no one's ever published a picture of crazy horse because he never had his photo taken i'll just publish a picture of some random native looking guy and say it's crazy horse to make money off of it yeah and just say that it's crazy horse you can't prove that it's not so right you know whatever uh, but that's one of the reasons why i think that it's interesting that they're building that huge monument of him near mount rushmore oh because we don't know what he's looking we don't know what he looks right, like nobody knows what he looks like but they're building, which, you know, props, well, I don't even know if I want to say props, because there are people who are offended that the monument's being built at all, because it's like, the people that were upset about Mount Rushmore being built, the issue wasn't that none of those guys were native, the issue was that you're defacing the sacred land. Right. So, even though, like, there are good intentions of building this, jo- and the right. monument is massive, it's like, right. if it went... I don't even know if it's finished yet. Oh, I don't think so. The top might be. I, I think the thing they're going to do is full body, and they may have like his like torso up or something. You can go visit it now, though, right? Yeah. Well, I think you you could um, you could go see it being built. like as it was being built. Yeah. It looks like it's still in progress. The yeah. face the face is there. Oh, it's, it's got it's got a long ways to go. It looks like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 still very much under construction. But yeah. So. They're building this giant monument to Crazy Horse, which, yeah, number one, nobody knows what he looks like because he was never photographed. And yeah, number two, the issue was that Mount Rushmore was built in the first place, not necessarily a subject matter. That was just kind of like, you know, extra on top. But yeah, so Crazy Horse, though, he his legacy was of this, you know, this this skilled warrior and revolutionary figure he was even highly respected by like the government troops that would fight against him almost like no one had like bad stuff to say about him okay like even the guys who were fighting him were like man this guy this guy's tough he's skilled and i I guess let uh let crazy horse's story be a lesson that if you have a bunch of uh have a bunch of weapons and the will to fight you're a lot uh you're a lot harder to subjugate (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, interesting. Oh, um, one little note that I had on the under my the movie uh, knows that I forgot to bring it up earlier, but the uh, battle was actually filmed almost on location. Oh, okay. They filmed it right near there. It was filmed in in Montana. What's the name of the? There's a little town that's like right there. It's like Crow something. Obviously, it wasn't filmed on the actual location because there's a giant monument and stuff there now. But uh, it was filmed okay. near. Oh my gosh, what's the name of it? Crow Agency in Montana. Have you ever been there? Because you got family in Montana, right? Have you yeah, ever been to I, uh, Little Bighorn? No, and I, I'm trying to think. So there was something that I I drove by, and I went home through South Dakota by myself, and I did stop off at like, uh, oh shoot, Devil's Tower, and then there was something else that it was like, oh hey, he, it might have been that site, but it was like, 
gonna charge you a lot to go in and there probably wasn't even anything to see that you couldn't look up on wikipedia so i think i passed by it that might have been the battle the little bighorn site but that also might have been something else in that general area so it looks like it's it's like southern montana on the crow reservation basically right off i-90 i yeah so i think i drove by it it may have even actually pulled off in to check it out mm. and it was it, it was like you know 25 bucks to go inside which again if you're there maybe worth it but the idea that it's like it's a battle site. It's not like there's something there to see other than just this is where the battle took place. Yeah, it looks it looks like it's basically like a just a monument and a cemetery now. Right. So I didn't feel like paying the 25 bucks to go and check that out. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but I, I did I did drive by it and actually like I said, I think I even actually exited, took the exit, and then was like, eh, nah, never mind, and then went back onto the highway. <laughs> That's the kind of research we do here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but yes, I, I do think we will con- we will continue later and, and and i do want to discuss the wounded knee massacre down the line but in the meantime we're going to just keep plugging away at u.s history and next time we will be looking at an actual event that'll introduce a new city to our timeline here uh we'll be in chicago illinois which had a very significant fire the great chicago fire of 1871 so we will be Discussing that next time in the film In Old Chicago from 1938.